You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Before we get into the show, Richard Berman has asked us to clarify a few things discussed in the interview with Impossible Foods CEO Pat Brown and Chief Communications Officer Rachel Conrad. One, though Richard Berman has accepted money from the tobacco industry in the past, he has, quote, never lobbied to protect cigarettes. About 25 years ago, he did promote the concept of allowing restaurants the option of having separate smoking sections, end quote. Two, Berman is not a climate denier and says there is no such quote from him about telling the story of big beef. Three, though Berman runs a for-profit PR firm called Berman & Co., which has been paid by the Center for Consumer Freedom in the course of its advocacy for positions beneficial to the fast food, meat, and restaurant industries, like launching attacks on the Humane Society and fighting against efforts to limit the sale of soda in school, the center is a nonprofit and therefore does not have clients, meaning it has never represented the soda industry, tobacco, cruelty to animals, or mad cow disease. And as a tax-exempt nonprofit, the center does not have to disclose its donor list. Four, there is nothing illegal about the management of the Center for Consumer Freedom. CCF is operated in accordance with the law and IRS regulations, Berman said. However, the organization was audited by the IRS following a formal complaint filed by a watchdog organization in 2004. From the newsroom at Eater, I'm Amanda Clute. And I'm Daniel Janine. And this is Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. With a little help from the biggest names in the world of food and the journalists here at Eater, we try to understand what's happening right now in kitchens, restaurants, and dining rooms around the world. Today on the show, we are talking about the battle over impossible meat. Wow, a battle? A battle. Plant-based meat, right? Not just impossible. Not just impossible. There is Beyond Burger. Beyond Meat is a big one, too. Yeah, but specifically right now, what's going on is impossible is being targeted Mm. pretty publicly. Okay. And we are going to get into it. Okay, we're going to get into it Let me with the Impossible yeah. CEO, Pat Brown, who you interviewed. Yep, and their head of communications, uh, Rachel Conrad. But before we get into it, I think we should lay the groundwork about plant-based meat, mostly because I was asked to speak about this on CNBC recently. Well, mostly pre- because it is, in my opinion, the greatest issue plaguing it is. humanity. It is a great issue plaguing humanity. But also, you went on CNBC. Well, yeah, and so I prepared a lot. So I feel like this information— CNBC, pretty big deal, right? Yeah. it's like I feel like, you know, before you take a test when you're in grade school yeah. or high school, and you're like, this is the most I'm going to know about this. <laughs> and then next week, I'm not going to know. So now I feel like I know these things. This is great. I can't wait to hear—this is actually really helpful for me. How'd you do on CNBC? I bombed. <laughs> so I pre- I prepared. I was ready. Yeah. But then they asked some they asked a couple of things I wasn't ready for. Uh, tell me about the experience first. Can we talk about it? Yeah, so I was in DC <laughs> on a, I'm not happy about on a work trip. I mean, it's fine. You can't win them all. No. I was in DC on a work trip, so I called in from there. So I wasn't in a studio with anyone, mm-hmm. which makes it harder. Mm-hmm. You're just like in a dark room mm-hmm. looking at a screen. They had the CNBC live feed. This was live to tape, so this is gonna air on Sunday. So you guys can all see this thing Oof. and watch me bomb. Yeah. Uh Instagram and- DM me at Daniel Janine. Don't don't tell me about <laughs> <laughs> Yes. 
Uh, so I'm like, they're playing the, you know, the live feed. So I'm, I see what's happening on the TV, yeah. and I'm supposed to be talking to the person in my ear. Uh, she asked me about the difference between FDA and USDA regulations. I mm. just wasn't. I didn't know. Yeah. Oof. So I knew the rest of the answers, I think. <laughs> but I, in those situations, I often black out, so I'm not really sure what I said. Really? Yeah. Is it, well... But I felt really prepared going in, Yeah. you know? I mean, that's important, too. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like... I don't want someone from CNBC to listen to this and think like, "What a dummy! Why'd we have her on?" Because I was ready. No, you need to go back. I should, I should have been on. Yeah. I just, I wasn't quite ready for that question in that moment. If there is someone from CNBC listening, Amanda, I have a question for you. What is the difference between FDA and <laughs> USDA? Well, it turns out it's wildly complicated. Yeah. The regulations for U.S. food. It's crazy. <laughs> Someone once p- compared it to me, like when you watch a like a police procedural movie, right? And like the the CIA and the FBI and the local police yes. are like fighting over a crime scene. It's the same thing because they all kind of share jurisdiction so over something. Yeah, it's yeah. not just like one is agriculture and one is everything else. Right? Like they both kind of get to weigh in on eggs, and yeah. they both kind of get to weigh in on cheese. And it's just like, oh my god, how are you supposed to keep <laughs> Maybe this straight? Maybe you whip that out. Who knows. Yeah, I don't, think I, I don't think I did. For for those of you who haven't done one of these uh, live to tape uh, in studio interviews where you're calling in from a satellite location, I actually did one with one of our video uh-huh. hosts, and you have to be so ch- like imagine going into someone else's closet. It's pitch black and yeah. there's just a camera, and they're like, "Okay, now be charming," <laughs> and then you're like, "Ah!" <laughs> and just like laughing into a void, and you have no idea. It, or- so let's lay the groundwork for yeah. what this plant-based meat situation is. Right. Here are the questions I prep for. First of all, what are the regulations regarding the word meat? And well, I think this is going to play into your conversation with Pat. Not as much as you think. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, here's something interesting. The meat lobby has gotten bills proposed in 25 states, mm-hmm. and 12 of them have passed, where people cannot use the word meat. Yeah. And in Arkansas, you can't even use the word veggie burger. What? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. Isn't that yeah. crazy? Yeah, that's nuts. Impossible is actually not as interested in the fight over the word meat. They're clearly aware of it, but I they to them that feels like a bit of a sticks and stones thing. Well, and they it would take so much energy for them to fight the meat lobby on that ground. Yeah. Like why? Like let's just like let them have it. People are going to understand what this thing is that they're selling. Mm-hmm. The main reason why these burgers are taking off everywhere mm-hmm. is because of the environmental impact. Like, that's why you care. That's why I care. Tad Friend had a 20,000 word, I, I think. 11,570. Like really? You yeah. counted? Well, no, but my Kindle tells me. And I was oh. like, these are the words I got to get through. Because I was, I was reading. I, I was counted like, every single is, word. This is long. <laughs> uh, but so good. And he so good. really got into the environmental impact. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest stat from his piece that stuck with me was that 14.5% of all greenhouse gas emissions come from cows. So cows yes. are releasing all this methane into the atmosphere. So the the thesis here is that if we get rid of cows, yeah. if we get rid of cows, we will actually cut our impact on global warming by something like way north of 50%. Yeah. Um, because it's 14.5% of the emissions come yeah. directly from cows. Yeah, that, just from the cow burps. Just from burps and farts. That is just from the cows. That's just the animal. What about Everything the feed? that goes into bringing... Yeah, so Impossible does a really smart thing where they refer to beef and cows as a meat-creating technology. Mm-hmm. And as a technology, meat is incredibly inefficient. So ruminant animals, mostly okay. beef, Okay. 
Turns out they provide 3% of calories, but they occupy 41% of the United States land area. Yeah. But beyond that, one-third of arable land in the world is used to create feed for livestock. Yeah. One-third of arable land in the world. So this is not just about their emissions. It's not just about the land used to raise the cows. It's about the land used to raise the food for the cows. Can I tell you about my personal journey with this information? And that is like three weeks ago, I did not give a shit. Uh-huh. And then I started talking to Pat Brown, to Rachel from Impossible. Uh-huh. And now they I really am sold a you? crusader. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've you commented on my- You sound like very impressionable though. I can't even think what other things have I felt like this about. I mean, I guess I was like Mr. Pl- Kill the Plastic Straws for a while. Uh-huh. But this is this feels so different. And not only does this feel different to me, but it feels like an easy thing that we can champion uh-huh. that is going to make a significant impact. And if you believe Pat and I, you have no reason not to, the most important thing we can do as, as a species. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you have referred to me in the past as gullible and impressionable. <laughs> <laughs> but he, but Pat uh-huh. talking to Pat really, really blew my mind. I mean, you. yeah, I, listen, like listen to Pat Brown on just the agriculture element. If you could just make that industry disappear right now, because that land footprint is so huge and it represents an opportunity to use the best carbon capture technology that ever invented, which is photosynthesis, to pull carbon out of the air. If you could get rid of the industry, snap your fingers, get rid of the industry, atmospheric CO2 levels would immediately start coming down, okay? So what did you and Pat talk about? So I was really interested in talking to him about these uh, these attacks or this kind of attempt at a takedown that was coming from these uh, lobbies, the Center for Consumer Freedom, that through shadow money is probably being paid for by Big Beef and, you know, essentially what is the beef lobby. Richard Berman is the guy behind Thank You for Smoking. How about lobbyists? What's that? It's kind of like being a movie star. It's what I do. I talk for a living. What do you talk about? I speak on behalf of cigarettes. My mom used to smoke. She says cigarettes kill. Really? Now, is your mommy a doctor? No. A scientific researcher of some kind? Well, she doesn't exactly he sound like been, a credible expert now, does she? He's like the angel of death. He, he, yeah, he accepts the moniker Dr. Evil. He Ooh. has represented Big Soda, Smoking. Workers union. The UFCW wanted to unionize one of Smithfield's plants. Smithfield did not want their employees to be in the union. Smithfield ultimately filed a lawsuit against the UFCW. And at some point during that legal battle, Smithfield reportedly retained the services of a D.C. public relations firm called Berman & Company, which is headed by a man named Rick Berman. He represented <laughs> cruelty to animals, mad cow disease. For their legal battle against UFCW, up popped a website. It's a website dedicated to telling you how horrible the UFC is. He has helped a lot with lowering taxes, the national debt, drinking and driving. Now that website happens to be run by a non-profit. A non-profit that is also headed up by Rick Berman. Wow. He's argued against lowering the legal limit for blood alcohol percentage. On behalf of Alcohol of big booze. Oh my big god! Booze. Yeah. Wow, this guy it's will like take those lawyers that will defend like serial killers. You never know with the serial killers, though. Anyway, back to Berman. So uh, Big Beef has hired Berman, a big hired gun, 
to start attacking Impossible. And we have all felt the ripples of his very successful attacks. Mm -hmm. I was talking to my mom on the phone the other day. She was talking to me about Impossible. Or I was telling her that I was working on this. And she goes, oh, you know, but Impossible, it is made with a lot of very, very processed ingredients. <laughs> oh, yes. The highly processed argument or the unhealthy argument but has been I gaining have, a lot of steam lately. But and it's that a little bogus. And is coming from him. Mm -hmm. Process doesn't mean anything. Well, especially when you're comparing it to a burger, you know? <laughs> right. Like, yes, go eat a salad. Go eat Whole Foods. Like, Whole Foods now says they won't stock beyond meat because it's processed. And the Whole Foods guy wants you to only eat Whole Foods. Yeah. But think about how many other processed food is in Whole Foods but, I mean, that he does sell. Yeah. So my mom said this, and I and, and normally I would have been like, you know, you're right. I don't want to eat all that soy or whatever. But I, I was like, this you know, this guy is very effective. Anyway, uh, even the fact that he is employed now by Big Beef directly to take out these substitutes right. shows that they are um, really, maybe not from a financial perspective, but, but a conversational perspective, taking a dent out of oh, Big yeah. Beef's stronghold. Well, also, Big Beef is investing in these companies. Some of them are. Yeah. So, man, I kept, I talked for a while to Pat Brown and eventually to Rachel Conrad. I wanted to know more about the company and how they're dealing with this PR battle. The legendary story on Impossible's origin is that you took time to figure out what was the best way that you could, I think, have an impact on the planet. Yes. And you decided that Impossible or, or that, that eliminating the, the meat industry was how you would do it. But were there, were there any other uh, options that you considered? Not for very long. I mean, as, very quickly, as soon as I, I was surprised, I didn't already know how catastrophically destructive it was. Um, but um, I, I guess I, initially when I, when I took on this project, I thought it would wind up moving toward, uh, you know, renewable energy sources and stuff like that. Um, because I was as ignorant as most of the public is today that in thinking that that's the big environmental, you know, uh, challenge. Um, it's not even close, but it very quickly became clear that this is by far yeah. not only the biggest environmental threat to the world, it's the biggest threat potentially to the future of, you know, the global ecosystems and, and human civilization uh, that we've ever had. Right. So it's a no-brainer. Pat's main goal is to give people all of the experiences they, they loved with meat, but take away the environmental impact. I think of us as basically developing a better way to make these products that the world loves and, and will continue to want. And there's an incumbent industry that is using this prehistoric technology to produce them with catastrophic consequences for the global environment. Impossible's message and their success have gotten the attention of big beef. They were paying a lot of attention to us before we even had launched our first product. Uh, it was to a very surprising degree. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they um, were collecting intelligence on us. We know, we know this from uh, a couple of sources. But again, I think it was before we launched commercially anything there was, I had a conversation with uh, someone who's a, you know, a lobbyist in Washington who was a friend of a friend who basically had received a communication from someone in that industry that basically um, asked him to participate in an effort to take down this silly company, Impossible Foods, or have, um, better yet, have hmm. the Congress or the USDA do so. And, and the interesting phrase was, the budget is essentially unlimited. So... Hmm. 
This was before we launched a product. What blowback are you feeling now from lobbyists? There's obviously, you know, a, a lot of effort to uh, limit our ability to market our products that just has to do with, you know, regulations around what we can call them and how we can talk about them. There were efforts in a number of of, um, meat producing states to put those restrictions on. I would say by and large, they were not very successful. I don't think that uh, the smart money is betting that it will um, withstand the constitutional challenge. Uh, You know, they've hired uh, this guy, Richard Berman, the Center for Consumer Mm -hmm. Freedom, who's like Mr. Um, Mouthpiece for every big evil industry you can think of. Take, for example, another website, uh, fishscam.com, which assures you that the mercury in your fish really isn't that bad for you. Fishscam.com is headed by Rick Berman. Or there's sunlightscam.com, which tells you that tanning beds really aren't that dangerous for you. Sunlightscam.com is headed by Rick Berman. How about um, which I feel like, boy, that's a point of pride for me. I mean, you definitely want to want want to be the people he's going after, and not the people who he's defending. Richard Berman, again, is the inspiration behind the movie Thank You for Smoking. As I said, he's defended cigarettes, he's lobbied against raising the minimum wage, and lowering blood alcohol content limits for drivers. His PR group's website proudly declares him, quote, the industry's weapon of mass destruction. Berman has his sights set on Impossible, and the person from Impossible who is really locking horns with him is Rachel Conrad, their chief communications officer. He is probably the, you know, sleaziest PR guy in America. Um, He's, of course, a raging climate denier. You know, he's actually now taken the mantle to try to defend big beef and to Mm -hmm. really, quote, tell the story of big beef, tell the positive story of big beef. But that also means um, trying to trash plant-based meat. Have you seen any advertising for fake meat? When you compare the levels of sodium, fat, and calories for many of these products, they're often higher than what's in real meat. Faint meats have become the new fad in foods that look and smell like the real thing. But these factory manufactured meats are made with ingredients you won't find in real bacon, chicken fingers, or a burger. His nonprofit has taken out advertisements in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. He's done a series of stupid op-eds <laughs> that try to question the, the nutritional benefits of plant-based meat. He loves to trash plant-based meat as, as too processed. Mm-hmm. And this fight is happening in two places, right? It's, it's, it's questioning the quality of your product and also surrounding the use of the word meat, right? Richard Berman really is doing this from a from a PR lens. And his big attack is, you know, it's, it's twofold. It's one that we're processed. And two, it's that, you know, essentially real men eat real meat and this stuff doesn't have enough protein and which is completely bullshit again. <laughs> it's funny because I feel like the media tends to pick up on this fight over the word meat. But what you're saying is this is like a, this is more of a, of a deep state fight of uh, public influence. Oh, for sure. This is much more about the, the hearts and minds of consumers rather than legislators. As far as I can tell, like I said, right. you know, it, you know, it, it might be that he's behind some of these, you know, legislative efforts in various states, but but mm-hmm. I can't prove that. I can prove that he is on the warpath 
writing op-eds and creating these bullshit websites stating things like, those plant-based products are just full of chemicals. I mean, I lean really heavily into that. Yes, it is chemicals. In fact, everything is chemical. <laughs> like, it's all right. chemistry. You know, like, all of food, the history of food is one of science and nature. Berman and his influence have been hard to trace. He is protected by layers and layers of organizational smoke and mirrors that help hide where exactly the money is coming from and where he's spending it. Mr. Berman is allowed to create all of these grassroots looking websites and not tell you who's footing the bill. He's totally allowed, totally legal because he does it through nonprofit organizations. He doesn't have to tell you who pays him to do it. We actually called Berman and his assistant said that he wasn't interested in having a conversation with us. You know, the way he structured his organization is pretty clever. It's very hard to see who the donors are. There there are a lot of questions about the legality of of it. Like he's running a series of nonprofits, but he's collecting, you know, $16 million from it. You you can't do stuff like that. I think that the biggest possible validation that we are truly about to change the world is the fact that they've hired Richard Berman. Like you don't hire Richard Berman unless you are evil incumbent industry so reviled that you your back is up against the wall. Is it worth publicly squaring off against Berman or are you going to combat what he's saying? That's a very that's a very good question. I'm certainly combating what he's saying. And 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 by combating, I'm not I'm not saying that he's wrong. I mean, our our food is processed, you know, so is pretty much everything else you eat. You know, like if you think a banana that you eat is natural, like it bears no resemblance to a banana from a thousand years ago, right? Like it's all a process between science and nature. So, so, I mean, I have no choice, but to, to lean into and combat the bullshit that he's propagating. Now, whether Mm -hmm. it's a street fight between, you know, impossible foods and the center for consumer freedom, his dark money front group, I don't care. I mean, I'll do whatever whatever I have to do um, yeah. to to make people understand that um, this company is on the right side of history, and he's not. Do you think that Richard Berman turned down a job at like Jewel or something to work with me? <laughs> I have no idea. That's a good question. <laughs> I asked Pat if he was nervous about Berman and whether or not he felt like he could have an impact on their company. I mean, I, I think obviously that, that, you know, their their tactics are to spread doubt and confusion about the the industries or, or the, the groups that they're coming after and to mm-hmm. muddy the issues around the problems with the incumbent industries. That's kind of their, their playbook mm-hmm. from the get-go. It's expected. I mean, we, we knew from the get-go that, that the incumbent industry was going to be um, using every resource at their disposal to try to get in our way. So it's not like any of this surprises us. So really, you just see these Berman attacks as a, as a trophy more than anything? Uh, yeah, pretty much. We will be right back with the biggest food stories of the week. Amanda, it is time in the episode for us to talk about the biggest stories of the week, food-related Usually they're hard news. Sometimes they're hard news. Sometimes they're newsy. Sometimes they're just what we <laughs> feel like talking about. Sometimes they're just tangents. But uh, we separate them all with the sound of a ding like this for structure. Uh, let's just get into it. Dan, we have some sexism this week we got to talk about. 
you know, it, it comes up. We just got to address it. Mm-hmm. Got to say, here here it is. This this time, one of them, Heston Blumenthal. Mm-hmm. You know him? Oh, yeah. Molecular gastronomy uh, folk hero. He has the Fat Duck in London, mm-hmm. Dinner by Heston Blumenthal. Or but, Fat Duck is outside of London. Dinner it, is outside, yeah. in London. Also was the star of one of my favorite food television programs of all time. Really? I think it was called The Fat Duck. I don't remember. Or Heston Cooks or something. But he really broke down recipes in such an obnoxious way that, that he, really could keep me interested. He's super talented. Yeah. He has a dish at dinner by Heston Blumenthal called Meat Fruit. Yeah. And it basically looks like a little orange and you open it up and it's foie gras or pate yeah i think it's pate it's so good yeah i would love to eat that if i still eat meat but you don't yeah of course <laughs> um, i mean if i was there i, I mean pate though you yeah. just don't eat beef right well Are it you depends allowed? on the beef i guess also yeah but, anyway, but like well, you would eat chicken right <laughs> you eat chicken you maybe eat for a special occasion okay you know cool yeah so he has a quote about women in the kitchen. He says, I have always employed female chefs, but historically and ultimately, the body clock starts working. It's evolution, and it is one thing to have a nine-to-five job and quite another to be a chef with kids. Yep. Yeah. Oof. Men should probably just never say body clock. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people talk about football players' body clocks all the time. Uh, <laughs> all right. Yeah, I guess if he's talking about athletes. Wait, our writer in London said Blumenthal, who followed his biological clock and marrying a woman 20 years his junior mm. in 2018, mm-hmm. <laughs> then suggested that sexism endemic to the restaurant kitchens is a interesting source. Yeah. Wow. Yep, yep, I yep. think my real take is just don't talk. Just don't. Don't. Talk about gender stuff. Mm-mm. I mean, pe- men should be talking about gender stuff, so I disagree. Unless you have a but good But just take. like, yeah. <laughs> just think a little bit before you say it. Mm-hmm. Just Don't. picture Amanda Clute mm. sitting in a Being studio. Like, what? Yeah. You guys should stop saying dumb stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Marco Pierway got in trouble for this like a couple months ago for doing something very similar. What's the other one? Okay, so there's another story where the world's 50 best um, famously sexist organization, really bad at promoting women. They have a separate Best Female Chef Award. Their list that they put out every year is famously Eurocentric, male-centric, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Uh, They also have a world's 50 best bars list, which (laughs) it doesn't get as much attention. Not not promoted nearly as well. It's just not as promoted as well. Also, cocktail content just doesn't smash like food content. Yeah, and... These awards become important because people decide they're important. Yeah. You know, like the chefs decide to care mm-hmm. and the food press decides to care. Therefore, it becomes this thing. And maybe the cocktail press and the bartenders don't care as much. Right. Um, so they were giving some achievement award to this German bartender named Charles Schumann. And he has just said all kinds <laughs> of dumb shit over the years. And so him getting this award kind of pulled this out like people were criticizing it he said things like there's no place for women behind the bar after 3 p.m. and he on and on and on yeah Uh, what I think is more interesting in this story is the founders of speed rack which is this competition for female bartenders Uh, their idea to move forward is to ask people to just stop talking about world's 50 best Mm. like if you are a restaurant or bar and you've won or you're on the list or whatever just Ignore it. Pretend it doesn't exist. When you have your publicist sending out, you know, pitches about why your restaurant or bar is important, don't include it on the thing. Wow. 
And I love that. Because yeah. the reason these these awards start to matter is because we all give credence to them. And so if you could just pretend it doesn't exist, which is something we've kind of talked about a lot here internally. Mm-hmm. But I like the idea of restaurants doing it, too. Instead of being like, world's 50 best, like number seven. Yeah. Just ignore it. Right. Don't go to the things. Don't play the game. Who cares? Sure. Yeah, it's hard to do because that, you know, you're in the top 50 and that's that's money. That's people looking yeah. at that list. I mean, all these gastro tourists yeah. who are just obsessing over hitting all these fine dining spots. Uh-huh. They have them off on, on a I map mean, they like might, bingo. They might still get on the list, you know? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I think that- But you don't have to put it on your like Instagram bio. I mean, let's just start with Instagram bios. <laughs> yeah. Let's just start somewhere. Press releases, Instagram bios, websites, all of it. Dan, there's a restaurant in Los Angeles called Conby. Mm-hmm. And their big deal- item is an egg salad sandwich inspired by the egg salad sandwich at Lawson's in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And it's this little sandwich, like it looks like white bread, the crust has been cut off, egg salad in the middle, and they have the an egg, like a full egg in right the sandwich. The so you can see yeah. it. It's very like Instagram bait kind of situation we got going on here. They have been written about a lot in the food press. They even made it on Bon Appetit's Hot 10 list. Even Steamy though they're, 10. They're basically, you know, sandwiches. And a new restaurant opened in Los Angeles that pretty much serves the same thing. Yep. Fascinating. So serving egg salad sandwiches, obviously not original, inspired by this place in Tokyo. But it looks this like same look. They even put them in similar boxes. The to-go box is mm-hmm. this like square white box with this cardboard ribbon around it with a branding. And this place is doing the exact same thing. Yeah. So we see this pop up every once in a while in the world of food. What do you think about this stuff? Is it just like fair game, do whatever? Or is this... A total breach. Oh, man. So many thoughts. First, I want to say about Combi that we see all these really elegant pictures of this sandwich uh-huh. with this perfect uh, yeah, sliced yeah. egg down the middle. And it's just so fueled by Instagram. And uh, we've had people who have gone to check out the restaurant recently, and uh-huh. no one has gotten a pretty egg. Oh, I know. The I know. Eggs are Our all coworker, Hillary, yeah. I think her husband took some home for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it got there, and she's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> right, so here's a message. If you're going there, and just make sure to tell them how many Instagram followers you have or mm-hmm. if you work for the media because like, that's a, how you get a perfect egg. Give me a egg. pretty one. Yeah. I, I need mean, a pretty sandwich. <laughs> My thoughts on this are, A, totally fair game. If something's working, uh-huh. it's a business. You know, Go out and make the same thing. But B, like, I really people should just open restaurants for the passion and the love and Biting someone else's thing, like how could you be inspired by just copying? You know, right. like don't open a restaurant, go into accounting, do something else. It's just like not the best business. You should only do it if you get if you're thrilled by every single dish that you put out of your kitchen. So the person who opens like here, when uh five years ago when it was the frozen yogurt phase mm-hmm. and Pinkberry was I mean, who knows? Maybe Pinkberry was a knockoff of the first one, but Pinkberry was the god. And then there were 16 handles, which, you know, kind of had their new concept. Yeah. Red mango. Red mango. 
Uh, I don't know what their origin was. Maybe they were came in because it was doing. But then there were like fifteen, oh, yeah. like Sweetberry and just like dead knockoffs. A, I get it because tourists are coming in. They're looking for New York frozen yogurt town. Very famous for that. They're just like Sweetberry, Pinkberry. I don't give a fuck. Like whatever. I feel like frozen yogurt is a bad example because like Terrible who's example, getting into that for and the I passion? Knew, <laughs> and I knew well, but but this is like I a would, little cafe. If I was going to do frozen yogurt. Uh-huh. I would be passionate about it. Sure, but these kinds of places where they're these like yeah. built to be chains. But like this is just a poke little poke is the biggest example. Imagine doing yeah. the twentieth financial district yeah. poke spot. It's so depressing. So but depressing. Like, a little indie shop in Pasadena and they're just completely ripping off yeah. combi. It seems so silly. Silly? If you have a sandwich shop and you have all these amazing things and it just so happens you have one sandwich that was obviously inspired by combi. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's more acceptable. But this, it seems. I think you do something cute, then you call too, it the combi, sa- combi yeah, sandwich or whatever. Yeah, you see chefs doing that on menus all the time too. Right. I rip this off from blah blah blah. <laughs> yeah. You know. One kind of counter. You know, we love a counter argument. One kind of counter argument to this idea that um, it is it is a bad idea to open the same thing to open like uh-huh. a sandwich place that's serving the same egg sandwich or a poke place that's like the 19th poke is oftentimes these are opened in buildings where they own the space and they're looking to lease out the space but because of the crazy re- uh, real estate that we have here and, mm-hmm. and in LA they are just holding the space because they know they'll eventually be able to get something at a ridiculous rent mm-hmm. so when they have the space open for 6 or 12 months sometimes they just open like a cookie dough place or like right, a right. very low barrier to entry restaurant. So oftentimes when you see one of these dead knockoffs that is just doing like a worse version of something and it some seems like developer. very bare bones, it's like a developer who brings in someone to do it super on the cheap. You're starting to see it a lot with CBD places. Ooh. In a lot of empty yeah. spaces that I'm seeing, there's like little CBD pop-ups, which it's like a whole store and they just sell pills. There's like 20 pills just there on 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 desks. And you think it's just temporary while the developer finishes things up and gets yeah, a Yeah, uh, my tenant. cousin owns the space and he just uh, he wanted to throw something up here while he's renovating. <laughs> you know. It reminds me, though, of the story that came up recently. Do chefs have the rights to their recipes? There was a story about yeah. a, a woman... In I believe it was Char- in, Charleston. In, in Charleston, who was brought in to revamp this restaurant's dessert program, and created an ice cream. I believe it's an ice cream product that looks like a cone, but it's not a cone or yeah. something like that. And she supposedly is a very talented chef, and wanted to take that recipe and turn it into a whole business where she mm-hmm. was just selling yeah. that one. And she thing. got a lawyer before she quit the restaurant. Yeah. Well, I, they quote the owner. Michael Shemtov in this too. It's for he has this restaurant group that started with this place called Butcher and the Bee. Yeah, and he has a good point, which is yes, she came up with a recipe, but it took an army to get it out there. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's she had to have the infrastructure to make it happen, and mm-hmm. we put all the ingredients and gave her the time to develop it, and then they market it and right. they get people to get into it. And so if she were just alone in her kitchen doing this thing, no one would know about it. So there has to be some recognition of that. Yeah. That it's like you yes, you're the creative genius and that's why they hired you. That's why they and you hired work you. for them. Yeah. And then when you take your creativity elsewhere, you come up with a new thing. Maybe I'm a curmudgeon, but it seems to me a little bit like whoever, you know, like Michelangelo wanting to take the chapel ceiling back after he had a falling out with uh Yeah. you know, the church or whatever. 
Yeah, he had sponsors who paid, paid for him to do the thing. Paid for him to do the thing. He does the thing, and then he moves on to the next project. Also, it seems like the restaurant is not trying to stop her from making money off of it. They just want to continue to sell it themselves yeah. as well. Yeah, they're like, great, you can also sell it too, which <laughs> yeah. I think is pretty generous. But like, I think you and I are similar in that we feel like ideas are cheap. Ideas are cheap. You're only like, as good as your next one. You keep coming up with more ideas. It's not about like, oh, I'm going to hold on to this. And IP is a thing and you should protect mm-hmm. your own IP. But in situations like that where you're working for someone else and they are supporting you get your idea out into the world, yeah. you should be happy about how that's a partnership. Having said that, I think if you are a baker, let's say, and you go into a restaurant and you have an idea for like a bagel recipe. Mm-hmm. And this is your bagel recipe that you've developed. And you go in a restaurant that wants to sell bagels. And you say, um, I want to maintain this bagel recipe. So I will be here and I will make it for you as long as I am in your service. But yeah. I want to keep this recipe yeah. for me. For well, myself. they can't stop you from keeping it for yourself. That's the whole thing about right. how you can't trademark anything. It's yeah. like the restaurant can't stop you from bringing your bagel recipe elsewhere. That's why with someone like Melissa Weller, right. she's a good example here in New York. She's this amazing baker. And everywhere she goes, people follow because they know that she has this magic touch. So even though she's worked at all these other places, yeah. I don't care. Once she's gone, I know they might have her recipes, but they're not going to do it the same as her. So no. I want to go to wherever she is at the moment. Plus, she kind of does something new every time. Yeah, she keeps ideas she keeps are improving. cheap. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, send us your letters to digestateater.com. <laughs> I feel like people are going to be pissed. Amanda, so every Tuesday I go for dinner with my friend Simon after we go to workout class and then we go for dinner. Mm-hmm. And we always eat around 9 o'clock and we like to go places that are pretty fast. This week we went to a Japanese restaurant. And honestly, it was a lovely place. There's one woman who's there who cooks all the food mm-hmm. for you personally and her, you know, another guy who kind of makes little salads and things and takes orders. So charming. Food is good. But, you know, we were there and we wanted to get out of there. Okay? Uh-huh. This one woman makes all the food. There was this guy who was in there, super bro. And uh, clearly had gone to the restaurant quite a bit and was, like, in the process of learning Japanese (laughs) and distracted this woman. And she was into it. She enjoyed talking to him. And he was just like, oh, yeah, like, I heard in Kyoto they actually use this pronunciation or something. And our food took hours. And we were just, like, sitting there eating our small little seaweed salad that we reordered, like, three times because it came out immediately. Just looking at this, like, if you, if this fucking guy asks another question. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, it reminds me of, we've talked about restaurants with, like, interesting setups where it is, like, lovely and it's one person who's kind of doing everything, but it just totally, you have to be so ready for it. It totally depends on your mood. Yeah, there's a restaurant by me that I've gone to a few times. (laughs) I don't know why I've gone so many times, but it's great food, kind of middle of the nowhere restaurant, great prices, Mm -hmm. Japanese, amazing sake list. Mm. If you go on a Tuesday at 6 o'clock, Best experience wow. because no one else is there. Don't tell anyone. They're, they, now the place is going to be slammed. I'm not going to tell you the name of this place. Uh, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. But you go on Saturday night, mm-hmm. it is a disaster mm-hmm. shit show situation. Wow. wow. Where what are we talking? It's, well, you just, it's one person cooking and then one person <laughs> serving and also helping cook right. everything. Okay. Uh, and so we were there a couple Saturdays ago and by eight, 
even though the restaurant was half full, the guy just started turning people away at the door. <laughs> being like, no, no, no more people, no more people. And it took so long to yeah. do everything because the dishes are super intricate. So they have like all these items on the menu and they all take a lot of work and there's one guy back there. Yeah. 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 And we asked my husband, it was it was getting so frustrated. And I'm like, no, this is just the experience of this place because I'm such a like pleaser and smoother right. out of things. I'm like, please don't ask. Right. <laughs> and he's like, so are you guys short staffed tonight? Mm, mm-hmm. Or is this I would ask that question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he was like, oh no, no, this is just how we do it. Right. And it's like why wouldn't you just have an extra waiter on board? Because they also make cocktails. Like It's one guy serving the dining room, making all the cocktails, giving the water, blah, 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 clearing the plates, and then one guy in the back, like basically butchering the chicken and yeah. like doing all the things. It's just so uh, frustrating. You know, like if you just got yeah. one waiter, you could have this place full and smooth and running. Maybe get a you should su- tell sous chef that. in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just like the way they do it. And maybe so that they don't get too popular. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that's the motivation. It, I think that's what they want to do. It's been, <laughs> well, it's been around five years. So obviously something is working. It is working. Something is working. Something like they're working. getting, they're like, we only want people who really love the food so much and that's that they'll two people in the whole world. yeah that they'll deal <laughs> oh, that's with you guys yeah that's us and the other people that are there like the regulars are people who are just like I like this food enough. No, maybe the regulars are like deal with the just laughing at each other and walking out being like we did it in four hours. <laughs> yes, that's you just so have to know to show up funny. early enough that you yeah. don't get turned away at the door. Uh, so I think that the the thing I'm looking at here is this is. And it's a similar similar story. It's a scary thing. It's very frustrating when you're in an establishment where you are so in tune with what's going on in the kitchen yeah. and at the bar because you you're kind of waiting that like you know you can see when they've started your thing. Yeah, yeah. And you can see when they're seven things away from starting yeah. your thing. There's no like it'll be out at any moment. It's like no, no I know. You I need see. that magic. Yeah. It's almost better when you can't see anything. I think it's also interesting. Just going into a business and knowing that it could run so much more efficiently. <laughs> like, you're like, you know what? Do you need me to come on and consult here? Because yeah. I could help you turn this into a real business. You obviously have talent, you have skill. Right. There's a lot of good a happening here. <laughs> but, like, can we just get this working? But maybe that would ruin it. I maybe think that would ruin the magic. The magic is that it's just this. Like, can one I tell person. you what the downside is? One of the only, one of the few downsides of having like successful consultant friends. Uh-huh. It's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And it's kind of like something I talked about last week, but. They go into Sweet Green or they go into like different kind of more robotic restaurants and they're like, I see so many inefficiencies. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you guys doing? How have you had this restaurant alive yeah. for five years? Like I have friend, I have a friend who I was in a Sweet Green with who was like, I, I, two weeks I would have this place at double the speed. <laughs> it's like A, like the ego of people who like yes. work for big brand consulting right. agencies to think that this restaurant who has been doing it for 20 years or whatever sure. could use their help. But the sadder thing for me is like I believe them. Like I believe yeah. that this guy. Well, and Sweet Green is big enough that they probably would bring on someone like oh, that. Oh, yeah. They probably just haven't gone to the you top should just yet. In, yeah. After this pod, you got to intro them. <laughs> should I send that cold yeah. email? Like this restaurant, uh, also their Instagram is so bad. Mm-hmm. And it, that's fine. But I want to be like, I could also fix your Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, I'm looking at their Instagram now. Their first post is a bunch of empty glasses sitting on a table with the 
text over it that says, we will be closed today to celebrate Yom Kippur. Yeah, all, their entire Instagram is just <laughs> announcements of when they're going to be closed because it comes so randomly without any notice. <laughs> it's just like, hey, we're going to be closed today or we're going to be closed two days next week. Yeah. And it's just like how this business stays in business, I do not understand. Maybe it's a front. I really want to go here. You got to go. The food is great. <laughs> I'm going to go at like 5 a.m. <laughs> the food is so good. Also, I've like talked to them before and they are there all day prepping. <laughs> you know, like the guy I was asking about the chicken. He's like, yeah, we we got the chicken from the live kill place this morning and like plucking the feathers. And I'm like, oh, my God, like yeah. the amount of energy you guys put into this like poorly performing restaurant is wild. You don't know it's poorly performing. I mean, they're, they are still open. So I think, though, the favorite place nah, I was going to say our favorite places are ones where we feel like. You know, there's something so organic, but that's so not true. My favorite places are places <laughs> you where you want them to just really run perfectly. You want them to just run and not predictable. Even think about it. Delicious. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please tell one friend about the show. Tell them to give it a listen. And if you have any questions or feedback for us, please email us at digest at eater.com. Mm-hmm. Thank you to Pat Brown and Rachel Conrad of Impossible Foods. Thank you, guys. Thank you to Martha Daniel, our producer for everything. And Thank you to you, Daniel. Uh, the other Daniel. Thank you to you, Amanda. Uh, it's good to have you back in the studio, you know, just cranking content. There we go. Um, see you next week, See you next bud. week.